I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 10. We'll be reading verse 5 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. This is, uh, some people would say this is an unfortunate passage for Mother's Day. Other people would suggest that it's precisely the passage that should be preached on a day such as this. Just know that I didn't intend either. When you preach through the Bible, sometimes you get passages that are what they are, and how you internally respond to it is actually a matter between you and the Holy Spirit. So, let's look and see what the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has for us in these words. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered 
that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. For a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Though it be in one sense hard, in another sense it is life-filled. Grant that we would have hope, that we would have faith, that we would have faithfulness to bear your name truly and rightly before the nations. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. All right, wasn't that a wonderful Mother's Day passage? So, Why did I take that whole thing? Well, because it was one long speech to his apostles, to his disciples. It it, it begins in chapter 10, verse 5. He instructs them saying, and then it ends at chapter 11, verse 1. And when he had finished instructing them, doesn't it have a weird ring to it? I mean, he's sending them out, but yet he's talking about drug before kings and, 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 and the rulers and delivered over to death. We have, we have absolutely no, 
no recollection of that happening at this point in his ministry. So what is going on? A, a lot of people treat this as if it's just a random assortment of the sayings of Jesus about missionalness or something that Matthew just put together instead of viewing it as an organic whole that Jesus is using to instruct his followers on the way their missional perspective should look now, or I should say then, at that moment, and then throughout the age until the end of the age. That word missional that I just said, man, it's a frustrating word. It's frustrating that we have a cultural context that has filled a word like that with all sorts of unfortunate baggage. And when I think of the missional church culture, it's almost all bad. But nonetheless, what other word do you use to say mission-minded? I mean, you could say mission-minded, I guess. I mean, that's the obvious answer. But that's more syllables, and I'm a simple man, and I want to say fewer syllables. So I'm going to say missional, even though what I mean is mission-mindedness. Do you know what it means to be mission-minded? Do you? Raise your hand. Okay, I see a few hands. To be mission-minded means you have a task before you. And this task before you that you need to get done is always the reference point in your thinking. And so it is the basis, it is the, it is the arbiter that helps you decide what to do, when to do, how to rack, stack, and prioritize various other competing items on your agenda. And so to be mission-minded means that you have a bearing and a focus that does not get discouraged or distracted or despondent by all the clutter and all the other competing things going on and you keep your eyes on the goal or the mission. And so in one sense, Jesus is calling his disciples in this passage to mission-mindedness, both now in that evangelistic trip he was sending them out on, and then all of his disciples until the very end of the age. It is my contention, along with the contention of many, that Jesus uses this opportunity to give some very context, situational, specific instructions. But then in the same dialogue, he, he goes and he steps back and he gives that overarching view of what the mission-mindedness is going to look like throughout the age until the end of the age. And he does so sort of mountaintop collapsing everything and so it looks like it's right there together even though it's a period of time separated by thousands of years because it's precisely in knowing the broad stroke of what's coming that you're fueled and inspired to be focused in the now. So, if there's a proposition statement that I want you to write down as you take away from this passage, it's this. God wants us to live a mission-minded 
life of faithful, fearless focus. How's that for alliteration? Do I get a, good, do I get a gold star for that, mommies? I'm just kidding. If my mommy was here, she'd give me a gold star. I grew up having that gold star if I did great, silver star if I did mediocre, or pretty good, and like a bronze-colored star. If I, and then if I didn't get any star at all, I was getting a whooping. So, all right. There are some textual things that I want you to note. There's a lot going on in this passage, so I'm going I'm to give some, some textual things, and then I'll come back and I'll flesh those out, having identified all the textual things that I want to point out. I want to then uh, bring the points that I just said. Okay, so verses 1 through, sorry, 5 through 15 are focused on the immediate, short-term Galilean mission trip that he was sending them on. Okay, verses 5 to 15. And in this section, haste is the key characteristic of that mission. Uh, you see that it's limited essentially to Galilee. Remember the geography of the area. There's the, the Mediterranean Sea on the west. You've got the region of Galilee in the north. You've got the region of Samaria in the middle. And you've got the region of Judea in the south. And then to the east is all Gentile land, the Decapolis. But it's Gentile. So Jesus says, don't go into any area of the Gentiles. Don't go to any area of the Samaritans. Therefore, he's cut off Judea. So they're going to be in Galilee on a short whirlwind trip. It's a trip of such short duration that they are told to take no supplies. So understand, Jesus is giving them an instruction, and they are to depart when he finishes. Go. Go. Don't go to your home and pack your bag. I mean, he specifically says not to do that. And it's, it's a short enough trip that they are going to be able to be sustained by the generosity of, of the people they meet that receive and respond to them. They are to go. All the verbs in this section, verses 5 to 15, are present tense. That's why you know it's a now. Do this. And they are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Retaining the use of that traditional metaphor to describe the people of God that is Israel. The sheep, the flock. Okay? And they are to do, in verse 7 and 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Does that sequence of things they're supposed to do sound familiar? It should, because it's exactly the things Jesus was doing in chapters 8 and 9. In other words, everything Jesus has said and everything Jesus has done, they are to go and do. Jesus is multiplying his ministry by empowering and giving authorization for others in his names to say and do the things he's been saying and doing. And if they find a worthy house... When we hear worthy house, we don't mean upstanding citizen. We mean a house that responds positively to the message. That's what he means. Okay? Now, it's important to note 
that the reason we can be very confident that Jesus is here giving short-term instructions is because in Luke 22, verses 35 and 36, he specifically, and he's in the upper room, he specifically says, hey, y'all, do y'all remember back when I sent you out and I told you not to take a money bag or a tunic or any of that, and a staff, any of that stuff? Remember that? And they go, yeah, we remember that. He goes, well, now I'm telling you to take those things. Okay, so Jesus has rolled those instructions back because What's coming up in the next section is is not a short-term, urgent, hasty mission. It's the long slog of the Christian life throughout the millennia. So haste characterizes verses 5 to 15. And then the next section, verses 16 to 23, is the section that is characterized by the need for persevering faithfulness. In this section, there's remarkable differences between the first section. So whereas the first section, verses 5 to 15, retained the use of the traditional metaphor that the Israel is the lost sheep, or they're a flock of sheep, now in verse 16, that metaphor is flipped. Israel is a pack of wolves, and it's his people who are the sheep. Jesus, he he says something here that it takes the early church a while to figure out. Um, We got to remember progressive revelation is not just something we say about the Old Testament. It took a while, even in the early church, for them to unpack the ramifications of the consequence of the new coming. So early on, the disciples continued to meet in synagogues and understand they weren't supposed to. It took them a little while to figure out that there's an incompatibility between the message and the ethos of the old covenant and its religious institution and the thing that Christ has instituted. And Jesus here alludes to it. How do I, what am I talking about? Verse 17, they will flog you in whose synagogues? There. In other words, that synagogue is not yours, it's theirs. And they will flog you. There's a difference, you're not part of them. It's not we, us, it's us, them. And they will flog you in their synagogues. In other words, that's not your home. It won't be your home at that time. And it took the early church a little while to figure it out. Just like it took them, even though Jesus in the Gospels declares all meats clean, it took took them several years to figure that out, to really apply that. And just as in verse 5 and 6, there's told specifically, don't go anywhere near the Gentiles, yet in verse 18, now all of a sudden you see reference to bearing witness to the Gentiles. So it's a dramatically different context from top to bottom. And the level of persecution and the language of that opposition that Jesus mentions here in this latter section is very reminiscent of Matthew chapter 24, which is known as the the Olivet Discourse, where he's going to discuss the pending destruction of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about verse 23 
when we get to chapter 24, because Jesus says, you will not make it through all the towns of, of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And there's great help in understanding the various senses in which the Bible speaks of God coming. But it is important to note right now that there's acts of judgment that happen in history that point to the great judgment to come. And just because you're judged in the moment of history does not mean you've received the full judgment that is to come. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment. So there's a day of judgment that's coming. It will be more bearable on that day for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for this town that rejects you. Okay, I thought Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. It, it was. And remember how Jesus says that the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to testify against uh, the people of this day because they've rejected? Or the people of Nineveh, I'm sorry. The people of Nineveh are going to testify. There's a judgment that happened in history, but that does not extinguish the full judgment that comes on the day of judgment. And in the same way, Matthew 24 is going to address how we understand verse 23 here. But the important part is verse 22, where in the face of all these difficulties, he utters the famous, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And then he proceeds from verse 24 through the end with a series of pictures and instructions and principles that characterize and underscore what it looks like to be a focused, mission-minded disciple undergoing duress. And, and he's, these are, let's be honest, some, of, some really hard uh, statements about discipleship, are they not? I mean, he, he repeatedly, whoever denies me, I will deny. And, and, and whoever doesn't do this or does do that, if you seek your life to save it, you're going to lose it. And, and, and if you don't love me more than everyone else, you're not worthy of me. And, and, don't under, and understand, when he says they're not worthy of me, he doesn't mean it in, 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 the, in the cute theological thing that we like to say where, oh, I'm just acknowledging I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the gift, but I still got it. No, he's meaning you don't get the prize. He's meaning if you, if you don't love me more than everyone else, you have no share in me. Okay. Wow. This is a tough passage. Well, remember, he didn't just give us Matthew chapter 10 on its own. He gave us the whole of Scripture. He's given us the whole of the gospel thus far. There's a set of circumstances that exist right now that he's sending his disciples out to, and circumstances are going to change over time, and they're going to be characterized by a set of, 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 of oppositional situations that are going to ramp up, especially at the end of the age, and in the midst of it, we are called to keep our missional focus, our mission-minded focus on taking the gospel to the world. We have to see our lives. He's not just talking to the missions, uh, to, to the missionaries he's sending out here. Notice all the whoever's throughout this. He, he broadens the context from these 12 that are going out 
to whoever. Whoever receives. To whoever calls. To whoever loves. To whoever gives. So it suddenly broadened to not just the 12 that are going, but to every single person who is calling themselves a Christian. And he wants you to see that when you are part of the people of God and you are members of his household, as he, as he says in verse 20, uh, 28, 25, when you're part of his household, you are part of the mission too. And you will bear the reproach that they gave to the head of the house because you're part of the house and he wants you to keep that focus in mind. But he wants you to do so empowered by a sense of fearlessness. And where are we getting the fearlessness from? Well, when he says do not fear them, in verses 28 and following, he's pointing you to the confidence you have in a sovereign, that is to say, an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God who so governs and rules over his creation that not so much as a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will, and since even your in seemingly experientially innumerable hairs on your head are so precious to him that he has numbered them, so in the midst of any difficulty you face, you can have great confidence that your days, your life, its experiences are in his care. And nothing befalls you that doesn't come through his good, gracious, and all-wise hand. And we can have great confidence in him to be and do all that he has said that he would be and do. He will vindicate us. He will justify us. He will reward us. He will even... Give us the words to say in those desperate moments of consequence. He will even, he will even give you a share in the inheritance of his son. And all those, and this is the important part, and all those who rise against us will be judged for having done so. No one no one abuses God's people and gets away with it, okay? And so because of this sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God who rules over all things in such a way that nothing happens apart from his will, what fear do I need to have? If, if I try to make myself safe in my house, guess what? I'll have an aneurysm. My cholesterol will rise up against me. My triglycerides. If I try to sit too much, if I try to play it too safe, disease, calamity will still find you. You you can live dangerously and, and be safe. In other words, it doesn't matter what context you think you're putting yourself in. The Lord 
in his sovereignty will work out his purposes. So have no fear. But that doesn't mean be foolish. He tells us, he tells us to beware of those men. To watch out, to be wise like a serpent. It's amazing, our Lord tells us that in our fearlessness, in our fidelity, we, we are to not value our life above all things. Let, let me be very blunt. If you're a Christian, staying alive must not be your highest priority. Okay? If staying alive is your top priority, you will betray Christ under the right circumstance. That's why Jesus says it so frequently. We have to love him more than we love our life. Staying alive is a pretty high good. I mean, it should be pretty high on your totem pole of priorities. But it cannot be the top. Faithfulness, which is loyalty and allegiance, is to be the top. But even a Lord who says that we must owe him our life's allegiance as top priority and who calls us to be fearless. Nonetheless, he is not a God who, who throws his people to the, to the grist mill. Think about the war between Iraq and Iran, those of you who can, and the, the fanatic followers of, of Ayatollah Khomeini who would line up and charge into minefields with the pictures of the Ayatollah around their neck. Our, our God doesn't do that to us. He's kind and he's gracious and he wants us to exercise prudence and care and discernment. Jesus has already said not to cast our pearls before swine. So we are to use the, the proper providential ordinary means of preservation but nonetheless, we are to operate with a basic mindset of fearlessness, knowing that our God is sovereign completely, and that looks like then that he has absolute control, and I can count on him to protect me, and if it's my time to go, then none of my sniveling or whining or trying to, to, to cower will prolong me for a second. So be courageous. And persevere in the face of difficulty. And I love this image of perseverance. As you are going, this is the great, this is going to be a life of, of, of opposition and resistance to the message you're sending. And you are to persevere. Loyalty. What does it look like to be loyal to Jesus? And this may be a, a a cheap, a cheap shot illustration, but I think it's perfect. Mothers. Like I said earlier, you are in the furnace right now. The maternal instinct is a wondrous thing. That maternal instinct to, to nurture, to care for. Even when moms are sick, they will frequently set aside their own interests and their own well-being to care for their children. You are showing loyalty, self-sacrificing love 
to that child. And that's just a picture. The Lord himself in our gospel, he he references that maternal instinct that that mothers have and and how it's a beautiful thing, but even women fail sometimes. But he never does. He's loyal to us in the utmost. But if you want a picture of what does it look like to be loyal to Jesus, look at the picture of motherhood and its loyalty to her children. To be willing to lay down her life for the sake of her children, to protect them, to give of herself to raise them, that's loyalty. And we are called to be loyal to Jesus. And for that reason, because we're called to be loyal to Jesus, that's the reason that we are faced with opposition and resistance. People aren't persecuting Christians for some theoretical ascent of a proposition. They persecute Christians because if you say yes to Jesus, then that necessarily, in loyalty to him, then that necessarily means you're saying no to a whole way of living. And that's the rub for people. They have a guilty conscience They know that there's a God and they know that there's a judgment. Romans 1 tells us they're just suppressing it. And so when they hear sin talk, judgment talk, God talk, the guilty foam at the mouth and fume. They fury in their heart because they hate it. They know it to be true, but they don't want it to be true. And they must force themselves to believe that it surely can't come to be true. And so the messenger and the bringer of it, the one who's the reminder of it, becomes the focus of their ire. And in the midst of this, we are called to be faithful to Jesus. Don't count your life as so precious that you turn away from the one who gave his life for you. And so, keeping our eye on the prize, we are to extol the name of Jesus, pronouncing that the kingdom is at hand, that there's forgiveness of sins and repentance from those sins. And we are to do this with faithfulness, with fearlessness, and with mental focus until the end of the age. So, what will you do with the time that is allotted to you? Will you just sort of wander through life? Or will you carry out your vocations and their various occupations, bearing in mind first that Jesus is the king who calls us to be absolutely, fearlessly, wholeheartedly devoted to him? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Lord, you... You give us some stark news, but you give us the comfort that your sovereign rule over all things and that your Father's will preserves us and enables us to be fearless. Lord, you gave everything for us. Grant that we would give everything for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.